Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Helpful tools or dangerous weapons? Michael Horton is uh, credited with saying this, the goal of Christian mission is not success, but faithful witness, not power, but proclamation, not technique, but truth, not method, but message. Now, the apologetics premise I'm using for this article, indeed, the apologetics pre premise for all true believers in Christ is the word of God, the scripture, sola scriptura. The authority of the scriptures in the life of the believer cannot be superseded by anything else, not by words of prophecy, not by signs and wonders, not by experience, and certainly not by pragmatic Christian how-to manuals. Pragmatism is defined as the doctrine that the meaning of, a, of an idea or a proposition lies in its observable practical consequences. One of the underlying beliefs of those who practice pragmatic Christianity is that the end justifies any means to get there. If the means are not getting you to that end, then the means are therefore not working and are bad. See, Peter Wagner stated this in a book on church, church growth. He said this, we ought to see clearly that the end does justify the means. What else possible could justify the means? If the method I'm using accomplishes the goal I'm aiming at, it is for that reason a good method. If on the other hand, my method is not accomplishing the goal, how can I be justified in continuing to use it? And that's from his book called Your Church Can Grow, Seven Vital Signs of a Healthy Church. Yet we see by biblical examples that the goal of the early church was not to grow huge churches, but to be sure the gospel and sound doctrine were preached. The apostles were looking for quality, not quantity, Ephesians 4. But the church growth movement that's been promoted by people like Rick Warren, of Saddleback, Bill Weibels of Willow Creek, Robert Schuler of Christian Cathedral, uh, Paul Youngie Cho, and many others, is teaching much of the church today to be more concerned with an end result of big numbers than an end result of mature Christians, Hebrews 5. So therefore, the means used differ dramatically from the means the apostles in the first century church used. Just to let you know the character of these men, Yonggi Cho was at the HIM conference in Honolulu in February 2004 as one of the keynote speakers. Many people that went to it liked what he said, but they were unaware that he lied. This, this is the man who saw a vision of Jesus Christ who came to him in a fireman's hat and told him later he was to change his name from Paul to David Yonggi Cho, devoting that he, uh, you know, denoting that he was a king-like figure in Christianity. He has also promoted visions and dreams as far back as 25 years ago in his book, Fourth Dimension, which was endorsed by Robert Schuller and is basically one of the manuals of the word faith concept of the force of faith and creating reality with your mind, etc. 
Now, Cho's Church at that time was 700,000 members. It's over a million now. Uh, and it was built on a vision. Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life made the rounds of practically every church going through his church growth programs. But this is a man who, when interviewed by USA Today uh, regarding, uh, you know, his purpose driven seminars, made these statements. Now, quote Warren is part of the uh, ultra conservative Southern Baptist Convention and all his senior staff on the SBC, uh, onto the SBC doctrines. Uh, they sign on to the SBC doctrines, such as the literal and infallible Bible and exclusion of women as senior pastors. <laughs> Yet Warren's pastor training programs welcome Catholics, Methodists, Mormons, Jews, and ordained women. Quote, I'm not going to get into a debate over the non-essentials. Non I won't try to change other denominations. Why be divisive? He asks, also citing as his model, Billy Graham, a statesman for Christ, ministering across barriers. Well, apparently Rick Warren's methods work just as well for cults and other religions. And he's happy to teach them how to build their organizations. Warren doesn't want to get into a debate over what they believe. You know, I could give you many more examples, but suffice it to say that the churches are now taking the advice of liars and heretics over the word of God. Christians are clearly commanded to follow the example of Paul and Apollos in not going beyond what the written, uh, the written revelation of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what's written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. The word, who is Jesus Christ incarnate, is our authority in this age, as the prophets were in the ages past. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things, and through whom, through whom he made the universe. So Jesus Christ himself, he is the word. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Yet, as an example for us, Jesus Christ used the scriptures to rebuke Satan three times when he was tempted in the wilderness, thereby dispelling any arguments against the authority of the written word of God. Matthew 4, 4, 4 7, and 10. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All those are from Deuteronomy. Therefore, we can conclude that all believers in Christ must, must submit to the ultimate authority of the word in all matters of faith and practice. Our final authority is the scriptures, 
and everything we believe and do must be laid down on the anvil of truth and hammered by God's word and tested, Jeremiah 23, 29. We're not to just take up doctrines and methods beyond the objections and precepts of the written word, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. Or bring strange fire before the Lord our God, Leviticus 10.1. But we are to abide by his commands, 1 John 2.3, and submit to him in obedience, Hebrews 5.8-10. The teaching and examples in scripture, the word and the testimony, Isaiah 8.20, must be followed. Anything that adds or takes away from scripture, Revelation 22.18-19, must be abandoned. Because there are dire consequences for going beyond what's written. The Bible is our guard and guide. True believers do not twist or distort the word of God for their own purposes. 2 Corinthians 4.2, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. <clears throat> you know, this is the premise for this sermon. Every new pragmatic teaching mentioned, and there are countless others I could cite, will be compared to the word of God. It'll be demonstrated that the new third wave par uh, pragmatism is not only going beyond what's written, but has much in common with sorcery and witchcraft, which the word of God expressly forbids well the first topic is how to pray deliverance prayers and this features c peter wagner john dawson george otis jr and a number of others these kinds of prayers such as binding demons wiping out past memories instantaneously eliminating bondage to addictions healing memories etc have become popular in recent times entire seminar seminar uh, seminars are built around teaching people how to pray some kind of effective prayer to get the desired result they want and think is appropriate for their lives of course as luck would have it seminars books and tapes raise tons of money also you know there's nothing wrong with model prayers as long as they remain bi biblical jesus christ himself gave us gave us probably the most famous model prayer in what's called the Lord's Prayer, but maybe should have been called the Disciples' Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There are also many types of prayers taught and demonstrated in the word. Now here's a list of some of them. Pray for the people of your nation, number 20, Numbers 21.7. Pray for your city, Jeremiah 29.7. Pray for peace in Jerusalem, Psalms 122.6. Pray for your persecutors, Matthew 5.43-44 and Luke 6.28. Pray for children, Matthew's not, Matthew 19, 13. Pray for escape from judgment, Luke 21, 36. Pray you, are not, you will not fall into temptation, Luke twenty two forty. 40.
pray for Christians. Job 17, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for boldness in proclaiming the gospel and for God to do miracles in people's lives. Acts 4, 29 through 31. Pray all the time. Be alert. Pray for the saints. Ephesians 6, 18. Pray for fearless preaching. Ephesians 6, 20. Pray to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Colossians 1, 9. Pray for open doors for the gospel, Colossians 4, 3. Pray that the word of God may be glorified, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Pray for deliverance from evil men, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. Pray for everyone, kings, authorities, for peace, quiet, godliness, holiness, that's 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. And pray for the life of dead sinners, 1 John 5, 16. Those are all scriptural, scriptural prayers. However, when prayers are given in books, seminars, articles, and tapes that, number one, guarantee a certain result, number two, claim to empower the one who prays them to be able to create the reality of their quest with, request with their words, number three, order God to fill the request by commanding, summoning, or invoking the names of God, these types of prayers are not consistent with the word of God. Guaranteeing a result based on commanding God by speaking certain words of power is clearly sorcery and not Christianity. That's what's called the force of faith, false doctrine of the word of faith movement through people like Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Paul Yonggi Cho, and numerous others regularly featured on Trinity Broadcasting Network. But the Bible is clear that God himself did not use some mythical force of faith as taught by people like Cho to create the world, but he did so by his word, 1 Peter 5, 3, 5, his power, Isaiah 20, 46, and by his will, Revelations 4, 11. We are not to command God, but we may ask, seek, and knock, Matthew 7, 7. If we do so according to his will, 1 John 5, 14, as long as his words remain in us, John 15, 7. We do not believe in ordering God to do our bidding like Balaam attempted to do on behalf of Balak. Uh, Numbers uh, 22, 8, 2 Peter 2, 15, Jude 1, 11. That's sorcery. One of the sins for which Balaam was judged, and is something that God strictly forbids. Deuteronomy 18.10 and Galatians 5.19-21. We always pray, thy will be done. Just as Jesus, John, David, Peter, Paul, James, and even the Holy Spirit did. Matthew 6.10, uh, 26.42. Luke 11, 2, 1 John 2, 17, 5, 14, and 15, Psalms 48, uh, Hebrews 10, 7, Romans 8, 27, 1 Peter 3, 17, Colossians 1, 9, James 4, 13 through 16. The second topic is how to heal. This features the teachings of happy hunters, 
Charles Kraft, John Wimber, and many others since then. You know, there are so many seminars and materials out there on steps to take in healing people today. It's interesting that all these materials go well beyond the simple instructions of James. James 5, 14 through 15. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name, in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. You know, Jesus also went out of his way to demonstrate a lack of pragmatism in the accounts of his healings. The fact of the matter is he rarely healed anyone the same way twice. If there was some kind of magic formula, some format, some incantation we needed to use, surely Jesus would have done it over and over again so we could learn from him. But Jesus didn't. Let's look to see if there's any method Jesus used that will work for us today if we just parrot his actions or say his exact words. Let's just look at one problem when he was healing from blindness. Matthew 9, 27 through 30. He touched their eyes and he said, according to your faith, will it be done for you? In Matthew 15, 30, he lay, they laid him, the blind man at Jesus' feet, and he didn't say anything. Matthew 20, 30 through 34. He touched their eyes, but no words are recorded during or after the healing. Matthew 8, 22 through 26. He spat on their eyes, touched their eyes twice. He said, do you see anything? Don't go into the village. Mark 10, uh, 46 through 52. He didn't do anything. He just said, go, your faith has healed you. In John 9, 1 through 7, he spat on the ground and made mud. and He put uh, it into the uh, man's eyes and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And he said this, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So is there any pragmatic method in the way Jesus healed blindness? Did Jesus repeat any magical secret incantations? Is there a pattern here we're supposed to follow as Christians, assuming the gift of healing is still active today? God obviously heals people sovereignly, but sometimes I have my real doubts about faith healing. If what Jesus did is supposed to be a manual for healing the blind, he sure made the method very obscure. Could this be that there is no method? Jesus is God. He can heal anyone, any way. Jesus needs no words or actions to heal. As a man, he was simply living in obedience to the will of the Father. I do believe that his actions in healing the blind as well as other healings are clear on one point. There is no pragmatic method. Any healing from God is based purely on the will of God. <clears throat> Today, as followers of Christ, we can anoint the sick with oil and pray for their healing. Of course, it's up to God whether he will choose to heal or allow sickness to continue for his own purposes. Oh, it doesn't say that in that passage. Uh, lest you think that being sick cannot be the will of God, consider the people in Galatia who were saved because God allowed Paul to continue there in sickness. Galatians 4, 
13 through 14. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. The word of God is a complete manual on healing. It's also a complete manual on enduring trials. James 1, 2 through 4, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hebrews 12, 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? So throw away your healing manuals, your Christian spell books, your conference tapes filled with the teachings of men, and go back to the word of God. Otherwise, be prepared to face the consequences of doing what you want to do and have to hear the rebuke of the Lord at the end. Matthew 7, 22 through 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The next subject is how to be delivered. And that's Cleansing Stream and other such programs. Some excellent articles have been written showing the unbiblical teachings of Cleansing Stream. You can read The Cleansing Stream, Warning Contaminated Water by Tom Launder. Also read Is Jesus Cleansing His Church with Cleansing Stream by Mike Oppenheimer. This program was mandated at New Hope Churches on Oahu and is being used all over the place. But what Cleansing Stream fails to deal with is a victory we already have over sin and death through Jesus Christ. What I want to bring out about Cleansing Stream is that this course seems to be upstaging and even usurping the power of the gospel message. Romans 1.16, I am not afraid, ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Everyone who truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is fully delivered from the law of sin when they believe. Romans 8, 1 through 2. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are on Christ Jesus, because Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. We then must continue in faith, standing firm, putting on the armor of God against the devil's schemes. Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, put on the full armor of God so that you can take up your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which you, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. <clears throat> Once we've placed our full trust and faith in Jesus Christ to save us by grace alone, we must stand firm in that faith because the enemy will continue to attack us. Satan can and does attack Christians, and we will never be free of those attacks and his temptations as long as we're living in this body. But we're free from, from sin because of the imputed righteousness of Christ when we stand in faith. We need to put on or clothe ourselves in that faith, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, the word and prayer always. The issue is one of faith, not of binding Satan or getting rid of any possibility of demonic oppression. Like it or not, the enemy will be with us until he's bound by the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly millennial reign for a thousand years and finally done away with uh, for good on judgment day. Satan bothered Paul throughout his ministry, 2 Corinthians 2, 7, 1 Thessalonians 2. Uh, 2.18. He can bother believers and non-believers alike. The extent to which he can do so is a matter of debate, but consider these passages of scripture that show that believers can be troubled in diverse ways by the enemy, and I won't read them all, but there they are on the screen. The point is that though a Christian can be attacked by the enemy, it doesn't mean he can be defeated if he stands in faith. Nothing can defeat those who stand in faith. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance which can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you through faith who are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, we cannot bind Satan. Only Christ will do that when he returns for his millennial kingdom on earth. Demons can be cast out of people, but we can never be completely free from their attacks in this life. Temptations and trials are allowed by God to build us up in our faith and to develop perseverance. Think about Job. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. A verse worth, you know, repeating. The issue is not some kind of permanent deliverance from the temptations and attacks of the enemy. Sometimes demonic attacks are tests of our faith, and God can turn them around to our ultimate good in Christ. The bottom line issue is whether or not we will stand in faith. Some, some will and some won't. 
The only way to take oneself out from under the protection of God is to turn away and follow the enemy, to shrink back and be destroyed, to not hold on to faith and be shipwrecked. 1 Timothy 5.15, some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. Hebrews 10.39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And 1 Timothy 1.19, holding on to faith and a good conscience, some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Faith is the issue, not permanent deliverance from the schemes of the evil one. We can always pray for deliverance from evil, evil Matthew 6, 8, 13. But that doesn't guarantee that we'll be delivered because sometimes God has an agenda for the deliverance of others through our sufferings, or perhaps our spiritual deliverance through persecution, or some other plan entirely through trials and attacks of the enemy. Job 121, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Through it all, we are simply called to place our faith and our trust and our fate in God's hands. Ultimately, that kind of trust pays off because no one, not even the enemy, can snatch a person from the hand of God. John 10, 28. Again, we find that we need no other manual than the word of God with regard to salvation or deliverance from evil. Methods of deliverance, if not based on the word and the testimony, are not only useless, they can be dangerous faith destroyers. Here's another how-to, how to cast out demons by people like Bob Larson. You've seen him on TV. Casting out of demons is clearly not based on the exactitude of the words used, information gleaned from interviewing demonized individuals or certain special techniques. It's true that demons only recognize one name under heaven, and that name is Jesus Christ, Philippians 2.10. Even the angels do not dare rebuke the enemy, but rather say, the Lord rebuke you, Jude 1.9. But it's not even the use of the name of Jesus Christ that gets demons to quit demonizing individuals. The real power is in the relationship of that person that's trying to cast out the demon to Jesus Christ, who has all power to send demons where he wills, not in someone's use of the name of the Lord. Remember Acts 19.15, one day the evil spirits answered, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? You know, there are no methods, no human devices, no formulas that can substitute for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The seven sons of Sceva found that out pretty quick. Simon Magus also found that out when he wanted to the ability to impart the Holy Spirit and do signs and wonders. But his heart was not right with the Lord, Acts 8.21. He was lacking the relationship. Jesus also didn't cast out demons using any standard technique or mystical words. One time he asked for a name from a demonized person, not because he didn't know the demon's name, but because he was exposing that there was more than one demon in the man, Mark 3, 9. He told another demon to come out and never to return, Mark 9, 25. He told some to be quiet, Luke 4, 35. 
The disciples never used techniques and methods, but simply said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. Acts 16, 18. Again, that's not a function of the words, but of their relationship to the one who has the power, and that's Jesus Christ. There are dire consequences for those who think that words alone will protect them without a relationship to Jesus Christ. Acts 19, 13 through 16. It's very dangerous to attempt to cast out demons based on the methods of people like Bob Larson. Pragmatism is no substitute for a relationship. And a relationship is the only thing that matters. Well, what about how to create wealth and health? And of course, that's virtually every teacher in the Word of Faith movement. Nothing's more despicable than the name and claim it prosperity doctrines that have made a home in many churches in this decade. The claims that Jesus Christ was rich, that Judas was handling large sums of money, and that every Christian should therefore be well-to-do are simply not to be found in Scripture and are ludicrous beyond belief. Excuse me while I lapse into a bit of sarcasm on this subject. Whatever happened to selling everything, whether material or in some other way, giving up what has become idolatry to us and following Jesus, Mark 10.21? Or is, was that just advice from one man? And if so, why him and not the rest of us? I guess it doesn't matter that the disciples were actually recorded as being poor, Mark 6, 8. And that Jesus was poor and homeless, Matthew 8, 20. Apparently today we need not worry that for, uh, that for a rich man it is, for all intents and purposes, impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven without a miracle from God, Matthew 19, 24. We live in New Testament times, so none of us, those nasty things Jesus said about choosing which master to serve apply to us. The thought that the apostles were self-supporting, not making money from their ministry, no book sales, videos, expensive seminars, is just so archaic. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 8. If those silly apostles hadn't wasted their time making negative declarations like the kind they did they probably would never have been persecuted or martyred, and the church would have grown a lot faster. Good thing we have new super apostles today to let us in on those better ways of doing things. I'm so glad we no longer need to worry about the servant of all to be on top of the Christian food chain, uh, Mark 9.35. Big hair accompanied with a huge ego works a lot better on TV. Times have changed. The old gospel's out, the new gospel is in. Hey, why read the Bible at all? Well, I'm done with my tirade, but there is the other demonic part of the name it and claim it that's basically outright sorcery. Taking a page directly from witchcraft books, Christians today are being told to just say what they want, and if you believe it enough, you can create a reality with your words. You are a little God, say people like Benny Hinn. So you too can use the force of faith to create just like God did when he created you. The problem with this new doctrine is that it runs smack dab into the problem of submission to the will of God, Matthew 6.10 and 26.42. 
As previously discussed, we may ask, seek, and knock, but always in his will and as a result of his words remaining in us and our faith not wavering. And there are the uh, places to find it. One of the major tenets of uh, witchcraft for centuries has been the search for secret knowledge and the speaking of magical words which purport to create reality. That this doctrine of the name and claim it is nothing more than white witchcraft in Christian garb. We can name it, but we can only claim it if God wills. Don't you think it's actually a better arrangement anyway? Think about it. How many times have you wanted something and that thing turned out not to be what you really needed? We're not wise enough to, to know what we really need. So in conclusion, the new how-to version of Christianity may be meeting people's felt needs, but it's not meeting God's criteria of obedience to his word. Remember, God's not looking for sacrifice, but for obedience. First Samuel 15, 22, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Jesus Christ already paid the ultimate price in his sacrifice on the cross. He doesn't want our works, our sweat, our strength, our plans, our programs, our schemes. He wants our obedience. When you walk away from the obedience to God's word, the way some of those I have named are doing, John says, you prove you do not love the Lord. 1 John 2, 3, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. 1 John 3, 24, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it is by the spirit he gave us. And 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. My advice, stay away from those famous teachers on TV and get deep into God's word. For only by obedience to God's word will we be saved from the apostasy that's already rampant in the churches. I just recently wrote an article called The Last Ride. And I wrote it because I was listening to a song the other day and began to see a correlation between that song of the same title, which is about the ending of a man-woman relationship, to what the Bible tells us happened between God and Israel in Jeremiah 3.8, and will also happen in the end times between God and those who profess to be Christians but are fallen away, Revelations 3.16. The only difference is that God took the children of Israel back, Psalm 14.7, and did not permanently divorce them, since God hates divorce, that's Malachi 2.16. But in the end, the apostate churches, the fallen away churches, will be spit out of his mouth. That's again, Revelation 3.16. Now this song is by Todd Rundgren, and it brings tears to my eyes. There's really a fine live version of this song on YouTube uh, by Daryl Hall and 
Todd Rundgren on Hall's program called Live from Daryl's House, and you can search for it there and you'll find it easily. Here are the lyrics to that song. The Last Ride It's the last ride. Our little game is over. It's the last ride. It's time to take you home. And we can't cry, cause we seen it coming. No use running. Take it slower. It's a dangerous drive. I'm afraid to arrive. But I strive to survive. More a fool than alive. I thought I knew just everything. I had it made and I could coast. But I turned away love when I needed it most. It's the last ride. My little game is over. It's the last ride. It's time to take me home. And I can't cry, cause I seen it coming. It's no use running. Take it slower. The road rolls, the road rolls around and turns through the town, and depression drips down and glazes the ground. Horizons east and skylines west, the moon, the sun, and all the rest, the loving son, the faithful wife, the burnt-out wreck of a poor man's life, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they all turned away love when they needed it most. It's the last ride. Our li Their little game is over. It's the last ride. It's time to take them home. And they can't cry because they've seen it coming. No use running. Take it slower. Now make no mistake, this article is not an endorsement of all the lyrics of this song. The sad thing is, of course, that Todd apparently lumps human lost love with the triune God losing his love also. What he doesn't know is that as long as we live, we can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the convicting of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ and receive his eternal love. In fact, the very concept of love comes from the relationship in the Godhead. But there will come a time when the grace of God runs out. All of us at one point were on our last ride. But after being born again, we started a new first ride that will continue for eternity. But you know, this song brings up the emotions of being left behind by the Lord when we remain in unbelief and unrepentance. This is why Paul tells us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We know that the Laodicean church, the one that the end times churches most closely emulate, has be had become proud in their material and assumed spiritual riches and thought they needed nothing, that th they needed nothing more when in fact God saw them as being wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, Revelation 3.17. God had divorced Israel because she played the harlot with other gods, Ezekiel 16.15. When God divorces, since God hates divorce, huh, it's a very serious thing. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and uh, after he had repeatedly hardened it himself, God allowed Saul to be possessed by a demon because he continued to try to kill God's servant David, 1 Samuel 19.9. We know that if a person continues to attack to test God and reject his authority, there comes a time when the grace of God no longer extends to that person. Hebrews 10.29 This also goes for whole churches, missions, and Christian organizations. 
there can come a time when their lampstand is removed from God's presence, meaning they are no longer participants in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. It's truly a day without light when the Spirit is no longer ministering through the church, Revelations 2.5. But you know what? I've seen many evidences of that. The Holy Spirit is being removed from many churches and organizations today because they are too brainwashed by the world, the flesh, and the devil to even realize it's happening. They become the proverbial frog in a pot, which when they, you know, put a frog into a pot of cold water, it doesn't jump out of the pot when it's heating up and it's in danger of burning to death because it cannot feel the change in temperature till it's too late. The question is, can we? The apostate churches and groups today are on their last ride. They've turned away love when they needed it most, Ezekiel 6.9. There truly is no use running. The only repentance uh, and only repentance and a return to obedience in the Lord will save them. They've scoffed and derided those who prophetically warned them to turn away from evil and turn back to the Lord. Second Chronicles 36.16 But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. What a horrible thing. They become increasingly cynical to the point where their hatred toward those with godly discernment causes them to pray for and wish for discerning Christians to die. Further evidence can be found that many are on their last drive with Jesus Christ in surveys done of believers and unbelievers alike. One survey found that millennials are turning to witchcraft and astrology away from religion. And you can find these links on my site. That one's that article is called Why Millennials Are Ditching Religion for Witchcraft and Astrology. Another found that 93% of Americans own a Bible, but less than half who are Christians have read it cover to cover. And most Christians admit to never having opened it at all. That's from an article called Why Have Americans Stopped Reading the Bible? Only 11 out of 100 evangelical church members believe that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. That's from an article called Apostasy Gaining Speed. Today there are approximately 100 million American church members who have very little to no understanding of Bible prophecy. These church members are from replacement theology churches that don't teach Bible prophecy and who look at prophetic scriptures as allegorical and not literal. Consequently, they do not understand the importance of Israel to the God of Israel or God's redemptive plan for Israel and the nations. And that's from an article called Approximately 100 Million American Church Members Have Little or No Understanding of Bible Prophecy. An online quiz started a year ago that examines how consistently Christians are living out the teachings of Jesus Christ has found an increasing an increase in the number of believers who are Christians in name only and that's from survey reveals increased in number of worldly Christians 
The American Bible Society's annual State of the Bible study shows most Americans believe society needs the Bible, but few are finding time to read it. A majority of people uh, in the United States believe the Bible contains the best advice for a meaningful life, but they also don't want to take it and are too busy to read the scriptures. And that's from America's Bible Hypocrisy. Study shows disconnect between beliefs and behavior. Despite more than 9 out of 10 Americans agreeing Jesus was a historical figure, figure what they believe about him diverges widely, according to a new, newly released survey from Barna Research Group. And that's from an article called Most Americans Now Say Jesus Was Actually a Sinner. Another survey reflects the reality of the day. The younger generation is no longer biblically literate. The same is true of the adult population and even those who attend church in most places. There's a famine in the land. Those who are still following the Lord are calling out for men and women to be raised up to form a remnant. A recent nationwide study revealed on Friday ten major findings about the influence of the Bible on American teens and their interaction with God's Word, including the fact that just 3% of teens read the Bible every day. According to the 2016 Teen State of the Bible research, a majority of teenagers in the United States still have reverence for the Bible, but their views about it, what it actually means to them, has evidently been influenced by many of today's secular influences that they have been subjected to via public school, the media, and entertainment industry. And that's from an article called Only 3% of Teens Read the Bible Today. You know, there are many more evidence of the apostasy that I could document, and I have on my website called Apologetics Coordination Team, at http www.deceptionthechurch.com Many thousands of articles on the falling away are linked there on many issues in our modern churches and society. When you read how many Christians have lost their salt and hidden their light, it can bring tears to your eyes, just as the song The Last Ride does. Oh, that those who profess to belong to Christ would return to their first love. Revelation 24, uh, 20, uh, Revelation 2, 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your, lost lo your first love. Jesus calls out to the remnant to draw near to him, to obey him, to love him alone. The world, the flesh, and the devil have become overwhelming uh, influences in the lives of many. Let's not forget just how close to the end we are. Jesus is indeed calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Proverbs 9.15 May we continue to ride with him down the narrow way. Matthew 7.13-14 Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.